Welcome to Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmayer, where telling the truth is a revolutionary act during this time of universal deceit. One of my favorite quotes by George Orwell and quite applicable to today, the times that we're living in. Every week, you can count on me to bring you honest commentary and facts to back it all up. Uh, You may not always agree with me, but you'll know that I'm coming from an honest place because in the times that we're living in, it's really hard to determine what's real, what's not, what's fact, what's fake, what's what are alternative facts versus the truth. We just need to cut through a lot of the BS, and that's where I come in. Most people know that uh, I tell it to you straight. So honestly speaking with Tara Setmayer was born, and I welcome you to my inaugural episode I'm very excited to get this going and to launch this. And I've um, I've been getting requests from lots of folks over the last few months about having something where I control the content and where people could come to hear me discuss issues of the day, have conversations with different on different topics with different types of people. And I hope to accomplish that every week and make it interesting. And sometimes we'll talk about topics that are a little heavy and there's a lot of that going on, but also kind of lighten things up when I can and to just give people hope that it doesn't all have to stay this way. Donald Trump and this administration and what we're going through as a country can be overwhelming and freaking exhausting. It's exhausting for everybody, even me. And, (laughs) but we have to stay vigilant. So It's important to me to make sure that I'm able to bring a message to folks and arm them with facts, honestly, because they're in short supply. You just don't know what comes out of this White House, what's coming out of certain news organizations like Fox News. They are manipulating people and and creating narratives that are really doing a disservice to, to the country because they're not presenting perspectives and things in an honest way. So here at Honestly Speaking with me, Tara Setmayer, we're going to be honest. I'm going to bring up things. I will always back it up with facts. And like I said, you may agree with me, you may not agree with me, but you'll always know that I'm coming from a place of integrity and a place of honest, a place of honesty. So with that said, welcome again and um, follow me on Twitter. Uh, you can follow the podcast at honestly underscore Tara. Uh, That's honestly underscore Tara on Twitter for all the podcast updates, Um, guests that are coming up, topics we're talking about. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter where I'm pretty active and that's at Tara Setmayer. That's S-E-T-M-A-Y-E-R. And you can always use the hashtag honestly speaking Tara. That way, if you want to send me a question, you want to make sure I see it. Honestly speaking, Tara hashtag is the hashtag honestly speaking Tara is the, uh, the way to do it. And that we can that way I can interact with you a little bit more because I'm pretty active on social media. I like to hear what other people say and reactions to things. And I'll you know I might answer a question or two. So uh, follow me, follow me, follow the podcast on Twitter hashtag speaking honestly speaking Tara. I also want to give just a quick thank you to Crossover Media for putting this together for giving me an opportunity to present this podcast. It's been a great opportunity and I really want to just want to thank the team for all of their hard work to bring this to fruition. So with that being said, 
Let's talk a little bit about what's going on. Some of the headlines of the day. I've actually been on vacation recently. I was gone for 10 days over in Italy, one of my favorite places, actually my favorite place in the whole world, um, celebrating my wedding anniversary with my husband. And so I was really trying hard to unplug. I was trying. It was not happening. I mean, it happened a little bit, but as long as I had data access to Twitter and stuff, there was just no way at night I wasn't going to get on my Twitter and look and see what was going on in the world. And what happened while I was gone? I don't know. It was kind of dull, right? August is usually dull, especially toward the end of August. Not anymore. Not with the Trump administration. (laughs) Those old rules are out the window. Back when I used to work in Capitol Hill, August was the time, like we were off the whole month of August. That was a time when everybody went on vacation. You went on congressional trips. You could almost turn your phone off because your boss wasn't going to bother you because nobody wanted to be bothered with anything in August. Except now. That doesn't apply anymore. Those rules are out the window. Just like on Fridays. Fridays used to be slow times in Washington, D.C. Anytime you wanted a story out that you didn't really want anybody to look at, nobody cared, you dumped it on Friday. Not anymore. Fridays, weekends, some of the biggest news happens on Fridays and weekends and now in August. Last year, what was the big story in August? Freaking Charlottesville. That dominated August. This year, Omarosa, the Woodward book, the anonymous op-ed. I mean, August has been nuts on top of everything else. But I think with today being not only September 11th, but it's also the day that the Woodward book comes out. Now, a lot of people, journalists in D.C., they've had previews of it. We've, we've heard about some excerpts since last week, and it has thrown the White House into a frenzy, a complete frenzy. It's not like they didn't know that the book was coming out. They knew this. They'd known for months. Trump had known for months. But I guess as the reality of it, was starting to sink in and some excerpts were getting out, uh, they <laughs> they weren't prepared. I just don't know how they weren't prepared for what was in this book. And when I started to read some of the ex- excerpts, I'm going to grab the book today if I can get a hard copy. If not, I'll just download it. But uh, I want to read this book because let's just be honest here. Bob Woodward is one of the most storied investigative journalists in the history of journalism. Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein broke Watergate wide open. They, those are the guys. All the president's men, like a movie was made after them. They won Pulitzers. Like these guys are impeccable journalists. Bob Woodward, his credibility, his sourcing is unimpeachable. So for Donald Trump and his minions to get into a character battle with Bob Woodward, who do you think is going to win that battle? This is Bob Woodward we're talking about. This is, this is, he writes books about presidents all the time and they're provocative books. The books that he writes, a lot of presidents don't necessarily like it because they're, you know, he, they're critical oftentimes and he has insider sourcing and uh, they can, mention things that intimate things that go on in the White House that a president doesn't necessarily want people to know kind of the internal struggles the palace intrigue and it makes for great books headache for most presidents 
But we all know that Donald Trump does not take criticism well at all. If you don't pledge undying support, that's it, right? He can't handle. I've said this many times before on CNN that for someone who claims to be a fighter and this tough guy from Queens, New York, he is the most thin-skinned New Yorker I've ever seen in my life because this guy can't take any criticism whatsoever. So when you have a book that comes out like this one, like Bob Woodward's, that has so much detail and the sources, even though there are some are on background where people talk to Bob Woodward, but they weren't named or there was reference to them, it, it just rings true. It's, it's consistent with a lot of the reporting we've heard over the last year and a half, even before that with the campaign, with Donald Trump's reckless style of leadership, of how he behaves, of his erratic behavior, his anger. I mean, this is consistent. It's consistent with things we've heard before. And for people like myself as Republican, a Republican, a conservative who is horrified by Donald Trump and, and does not support him, did not support him during the election and still don't, it unfortunately just proves everything that we already predicted, thought, warned people about. And I don't like to be right about these things. I've never wanted to be more wrong in my life. But unfortunately, every day, every week, every month, we see examples of, of the concerns that many of us had before the election about Donald Trump, his inability his, to lead, his unfitness for the office. And this book is just another example. But this, like I said, this is a book by Bob Woodward. This is an Omarosa, okay? Uh, who was on The View, by the way, yesterday. And she was supposed to drop some new tape that she had. And you know, to be honest, it, it was nothing. It was Trump. In, he crashed some press secretary meeting in the White House. He decided just to show up and then started railing about Hillary Clinton and the Russians and the dossier. Yeah, so what? We already know this. Trump does this on a regular basis on Twitter. So I think Omarosa's losing some steam, uh, even though she had all these tapes and things. But, you know, the last couple of reveals have been duds. So, I mean, I can't stand Omarosa anyway. But it was sure entertaining as hell in the beginning. <laughs> but I think she's starting to lose steam with these revelations. You know, you, you can't uh, you can't say the sky is falling all the time and, and, and it not. So. But anyway, my point, though, is that Bob Woodward isn't and isn't a media whore and constantly looking for attention, unlike some other people. So the credibility, the credibility battle here, <laughs> Trump's not going to win this. He's not. Have you ever seen the movie The American President? I like that movie. It's kind of a cornball movie from the 90s. And as a conservative, as a Republican, of course, the Republicans were the villains in that movie. And I was very upset when I first saw it. I was like, oh, come on. They didn't have to portray the Republicans like that. But watching it today, but I appreciated like the, the political banter and some of the terminology. And, you know, when you're a political nerd like me working inside the Beltway, going to college here, I went to George Washington University, go Colonials. You kind of those political movies, you just you, you like kind of the just the political interactions. And so minus the minus the, the left wing tint of that movie. 
the um there's a line at the toward the end because the plot of the movie is the president played by Michael Douglas he's a single he's a widow he's a widower I guess that's what it is for men and uh, he's raising a daughter she's like 12 or 13 and he meets this lobbyist named Sidney Allen Wade and the Republican um, nominee that running against him he they were attacking his character for having a girlfriend so you have a president having a girlfriend um, his wife had died many years ago and and so they were questioning his family values and all of this and so they try to vilify her and it becomes a whole thing and so he takes to the, to the podium in this like dramatic press conference at the end and he says he goes after Bob Rumson who was the Republican his Republican opponent and says you know if you want to take on anybody's character you want to take on Sidney Allen Wade I challenge you and it was, you know, all dramatic. But that's kind of when I heard that the movie was on recently and it reminded me of what's going on now where I'm like, you guys want to take on Bob Woodward? Yeah, OK, let's see who wins that battle. Now, I'm not the only one who thinks like this because there are two new polls out that basically support the fact that the American people think the president of the United States is a liar. When have we ever been in a position to question the president of the United States at this level. I, I can't remember in recent time. So the first poll was Quinnipiac came out the other day and they asked some pretty pointed questions. And that's another, it's kind of unprecedented, kind of unprecedented to be honest, because I can't remember. And I've been in politics for well, 25 years now, almost. My God, I'm getting old. <laughs> My birthday was just uh, on the 9th, and yeah, I'm well, I'm 43 years old now. So yes, 25 years of politics. I can't remember pollsters asking questions like, do you think the president of the United States is mentally stable? That was actually a real question. Only 55% of the respondents in this Quinnipiac poll said no let me let me say that again the Quinnipiac poll actually asked if the president of the United States is mentally stable do you know how many people actually said no 42 percent 48 percent said yes they thought he was mentally stable but 42 percent said no Less than half this country thinks the president of the United States is mentally stable. That's insane. Some of the other questions they asked, is the president fit to serve? Do you believe the president is fit to serve? 55% of respondents said no. Do you find the president honest? Only 32% said yes. 60% said no. And that's down from 38% in July. These are terrible numbers. We're talking about the president of the United States. They asked, do you think the president's level-headed? 65% said no. Job approval, overall job approval, only 38%. They also asked if they thought the, the president was intelligent. <laughs> and uh, only 51% said yes, which was down from 74% in November of 2016. 
Now, you know that's going to throw Trump into a, a Trumper tantrum on Twitter because he has to remind us of what a stable genius he is and how many times will we heard that he's gone to the Wharton School of Finance and he's a great student with a big brain. I mean, enough. You don't have to tell, keep telling people that. Smart people don't have to keep telling people how smart they are or reminding people of what, you know, the great school they went to. It's so obnoxious. I think he's a little insecure about that. But yeah, I mean, CNN also, brand new poll came out yesterday. And the the president's poll numbers have plummeted with independent voters. And independents are usually those folks in the middle that can swing an election either way. And right now, the president has 31% approval rating with independents. That's down from 47% in just July. That's a pretty significant freefall. The president is hemorrhaging support with the people in the middle. You know, you're always going to have the fringes on the left, on the right. You know, the, the, those folks aren't going anywhere. But the people in the middle, they're the ones that decide elections. And the president is hemorrhaging support with them. He's down 6% overall. Why? Why? He's down from 42% in August to 36% now. What changed? Maybe it's his behavior. Maybe it's the crazy things that he keeps saying. Maybe it's the Woodward book and what's being quoted and reinforcing people's worst fears. I'm not sure. Maybe the anonymous op-ed in the New York Times, people relate to it. I'm not sure. But I can tell you that none of this is good. And these are numbers despite the fact that the economy is actually doing well. It's, it's a phenomenon. Political scientists are going to study this for years. But how the president can have such a low approval rating despite the economy roaring. It's doing great. Unemployment's at record lows, right? I mean, the president's approval rating should be 60s, 70s. But his own, he's his own worst enemy. He steps on his own message because he's got a lot going on. And he's always whining. And he's always whining about how much he's a victim of this and it's all about me, me, me. And that's that malignant narcissism that we see the president engage in all the time. He just can't help it. He, he just can't help it. And he uses wedge issues. You know, I mean, that's what got him elected, right? He ran on emotion. He ran on catering to people's fears. And it's unsustainable. I don't know how the country can continue on this path like this, but constantly using cultural issues to stoke fear and anger in people, I just don't think that's the American way. No, it's, um, it concerns me. and I don't like it. And trying to just um, use propaganda tactics and keep repeating lies over and over again. That's why the American people think he's a liar. Like, I guess the president forgets that we can fact check things nowadays. I don't know, but we can. And there are a lot of people out there that constantly fact check the president, including the media, which is why the president attacks the media. Because he knows the media is supposed to hold him accountable. Does the media always get it right? No. Do some have an agenda? Yes, but for the most part, the institution of a free press is there to hold public officials accountable and most mainstream media outlets do do that and they do a great job of it. But it's a tactic. The president does not want to be held accountable. 
because he's unfit. He doesn't know what he's doing and he's in way above his head. So he just continues to ride this wave of using cultural outrage and then some successes with the economy, which we could have gotten, by the way, with any sane Republican president. Most of you know, or some of you may not know, but I am a Republican. I'm a conservative, so I do come from that point of view. But I don't know what the conservatives and Republicans are doing today. Most of them, they've lost their freaking minds. So I feel it's important for people like myself and others to be honest and not be hypocrites and call it out. Make sure we call them out when they are when they're being dishonest. So we could have had tax cuts. We could have had an overhaul of health care. We could have had other legislative successes from a Republican point of view with any other sane Republican we didn't need Donald Trump to do this. What were the successes that we have now in, with the economy? We didn't need him to do this. Because at what cost? The, uh, the country's being torn apart with this guy. And that brings me back to another issue that's in the news, and that's the NFL. I'm a huge sports fan. So during football season, every week you'll probably hear me say something about my beloved New York Giants, and whether they won or lost or my fantasy football league, because yes, I play fantasy football. I'm a guy's girl. I am the reigning champion of my fantasy football league from last season. So I have a title to defend this season. Um, but uh, I, uh, I'm i looking at the, the NFL and the controversy with the anthem and Colin Kaepernick. And last year, I was, I wasn't necessarily in favor of the protests and I'm really still not. I come from a law enforcement family and my husband is a federal law enforcement officer. My grandfather was captain of our local police department. He spent 40 years on the force. So I come from a different point of view on the whole police interaction, police shooting stuff. Um, I'm a little less emotional about it, a little more analytical about it. I see both sides. So, and I also feel like the NFL during a game is not the time for those kinds of political protests. I just don't. If you want to protest, protest in your own time, not while you're on the job. That's been my perspective and I don't, that hasn't changed. However, uh, it turned, Donald Trump elevated this to something that was just became personal when he started calling NFL players SOBs and everything else and saying they should get out of the country. Even I was starting to take the the position of the players right to protest because it just, it was, it just felt racial. It felt personal and it just didn't feel it was inappropriate coming from the president of the United States. He shouldn't have been weighing in on that. And now he's elevated it into an us versus them. It's about patriotism, disrespecting the anthem, our flag, the military. And I have certain feelings about that. I mean, despite what people say, my personal opinion, I do think that it's disrespectful to the flag. I do think it's disrespectful to the military. A lot of people will disagree with me. I just have a difference of opinion. The flag and the anthem are being used as a tool of protest. And you can't say it's not disrespectful when it is. So with that said, though, the, the way the president has gone about this has really, really made it hard to stand with him, no pun intended, 
when he behaves like this, it's just, it's just such an inappropriate way to have a difference of opinion about this. And now look what's turned, it's turned into, it's turned into a racial issue. People boycotting the NFL. And now Nike has decided to bring Colin Kaepernick on as the face of Nike for their 30 year anniversary. They decided to take a political position and it's a bold one. Now I think that the ad campaign in general is a great one. That's a, it's an amazing ad campaign. I just, I'm not happy with Colin Kaepernick being the face of it and putting it in the terms of sacrifice. When you look at people who, you know, go into the military or put their lives on the line. I mean, that's real sacrifice, not playing a game and giving up millions of dollars. Um, but I guess we all have different definitions of sacrifice. I just think that it's unfortunate. I don't like seeing politics and sports. This has gone on for many years. We've seen it in the past, but not to this degree, in my opinion. So, but the president is the one who's elevated this and he keeps going on and on. And, and, and a lot of us, I've, I find sports to be a reprieve. That's what I like to get when I want to get away from politics. I watch sports Sunday afternoons during football season or Saturdays when I watch college football. That is my reprieve from politics. And we can't even get away from that. My friend Rick Wilson wrote a book, and he'll be on next week, by the way. But Rick Wilson <laughs> wrote a book that said everything Trump touches dies. He's like even killing sports. Like I, I, I don't know where it ends. I don't know where it ends. There's no escape. Um, but I don't know. This the NFL issue is not going away. The controversy I think could hurt Democrats potentially because it will motivate Republicans to get get out and vote because now. Trump and the Republicans can use this as a cultural wedge issue and get people to the polls. The flip side of it, Democrats could also use that as a motivating factor and get them out, especially young people who usually don't vote during midterms. So it's a political calculation. It's a risk. We'll see what happens in November, but I think it could potentially be a factor. And I just wish that we didn't have to have, you know, this kind of, these kind of politics and sports and and we could just enjoy Sunday afternoons without this. The NBA had a, had a, they, well, they've had a rule in place for many years since the 80s. They don't have this problem. The NFL kind of brought this on themselves by not having a rule that was ambiguous. And so now we have a problem. They tried to issue a rule. They didn't complete, they didn't um, consult with the, with the NFL Players Association necessarily when they said, all right, look, if you want to protest, you don't have to come out. You can stay in the locker room during the national anthem. Or, um, but if you but if you come out and you kneel, you're going to get fined. That didn't go over well. They've now put that on hold. It's been postponed because there was a lot of pushback. So even from owners, and it's it's a mess. The NBA they don't have this problem. They approach it a little bit differently. But uh, we'll see. Unfortunately, this issue is not going away. And um, I'm sure we'll be talking about it more as the season goes on. But I, I hope that it quiets down. Don't think the president's going to allow that. But that's a, that's a good transition into 9-11. Because today is one of those days where of just reflection. Um, where everyone remembers where they were when those planes hit the towers 
and when the towers fell. And I'm from New Jersey. I grew up in Bergen County, which is right across the George Washington Bridge from New York City. My mom was involved in show business and Broadway. And so as a kid, I used to be in New York all the time for different things, going to Lincoln Center and the National Symphony Orchestra, all kinds of things. And so New York will always have a special place in, in my heart. I think it's the greatest, greatest city in the world. And I was not in New York or Washington at the time on, on September 11th. I was actually in Florida, uh, but working on some political stuff there. But I watched it just like many of millions of others. And when that second plane hit, I just knew. And then just, just when the towers fell, it was horrible. Even, even now I, I can still see it like it was yesterday. And here we are 17 years later. And I remember all those amazing, heroic acts of courage and bravery and how unified the country was. And I, I, it's a shame that it takes tragedy to unify people that way, but the response of the American people and President Bush at the time was pretty remarkable. That's also back when Rudy Giuliani was sane. I don't know what happened to that guy. He used to be America's mayor. I don't know who that guy is today. He's unrecognizable. But he did a great job leading New York City through that tragedy. And I just felt I just felt that we should it, it is important to never forget. We cannot forget what happened that day, what led up to what happened that day, all of the lives that were lost, the blood that was shed after, America's response to it. I just think it's important that we continue to pay tribute to all the brave men and women who lost their lives that day and to those who are still paying the price some of the residual effects of being there responding some of the first responders the police officers the firemen uh it, it's still people are still feeling those effects 17 years later so on on this day i and i also remember there was a time where everybody had an american flag and they flew it with pride on your car and your front lawn. I mean, there are American flags everywhere because it was a sign of unity. So yeah, it upsets me when, when people say that, that it's not about the flag or it doesn't disrespect the flag when NFL players are kneeling and they're trying to send a message. I don't know. It just, it feels like it, it, it is a disrespect. So that's why for me, um, I I hold those values very dearly. I mean, they have a First Amendment right, but that's the, the government not being able to suppress your free speech. It's different in a private setting, but that's a, another discussion for another day. But it made me think about 9-11 and the unity and, and our country and, and, and the pride that I, that I still feel when I see the American flag, even though what's happening in this administration sometimes makes me question how we got here but it also motivates me to make sure that we preserve the democratic norms institutions and ideals that make this country great and would not allow Donald Trump to sully them any further or do it without being held accountable so I think it would be it was really it would it's appropriate on a day like today to bring someone in who was on the ground firsthand for 9-11, witnessed what took place, and helped coordinate their response, 
and that was former New York Commissioner Bernie Carrick, who joins me today. I just wanted to introduce uh, introduce Bernie. He's a controversial figure for some people, and that's okay. He still was a major player in the response on 9-11, and I felt that his perspective is valuable. And everybody gets, well, not everybody, but <laughs> America is a place of second chances. And I believe in people who show genuine remorse, repentance for what they've done, deserve a second chance. And I think Bernie Carrick is an example of that. So with that said, I'd like to introduce my first guest on Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmayer. Former New York City Police Commissioner Bernie Carrick knows the criminal justice system both inside and out, literally. His career in law enforcement spans over 30 years and earned him over 100 awards and international attention, most notably for his role during 9-11, and later for his nomination by George W. Bush to be Secretary of Homeland Security Secretary in 2004, which then led to a federal investigation that ultimately resulted in Carrick serving three years in prison. He was released in October 2013 and has since used his unique perspective and expertise to become an advocate for criminal justice reform. From his firsthand experience on the ground on 9-11 and the aftermath, to his life-altering fate of becoming a federal prisoner and the importance of second chances, to his newly released book, The Grave Above the Grave, Bernie Carrick joins me now to discuss. Bernie, I'm so happy to have you on as my first guest. Um, You've worn many hats and you've done many things, and I couldn't think of a better person to talk about 9-11 and your experiences and just your, your, your life in general since then. It's, um, it's been pretty remarkable, and, and I just think that uh, you should be admired for what you've, what you've accomplished and what you've faced and where you've come since then. So welcome to the inaugural episode of Honestly Speaking with Tara. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to start off by um, talking about and reflecting a little bit about 9-11. We are 17 years removed, and it, it still feels like yesterday for those of us who were from the area. You know, I'm from Jersey. You know, you're a Jersey guy. And um, in your position as, as police commissioner in New York, it, it, does it still feel raw to you, even 17 years later? You know what, Tara, it's... Um there isn't a day that goes by that I don't think about it in some way. Um, whether it's something that I see or smell or um, somebody says something to me or I see something on TV or on the news. Um, I actually wear a, uh, a bracelet on my hand that has the letters carved into it, uh, NYPD-23. Um, WTC uh, for the World Trade Center on September 11th. That's been on my hand for 16 years, with the exception of the time that I was away. Um, you know, every day I think about it. I think about the people that worked for me that were lost, um, and I think about the people that worked for me and for the city of New York that are still suffering. You know, we've got thousands right now of people that uh, are suffering from some illness 
or whether it's respiratory or, you know, blood uh, cancer or whatever the case may be, um, thousands uh, that are suffering as a result of their service on that day. And I think we owe them a debt of gratitude that is beyond the scope of anything anybody can imagine. Because, uh, you know, in the world of reality, uh, the men and women in the New York City Police Department, Fire Department, uh, the Port Authority Police affected the greatest rescue mission in the history of our country. And I think sometimes, uh, sometimes people forget that. I, I don't disagree. I think the further we get away from it and people kind of get back to their normal lives, they don't really appreciate what happened that day. Well, not everybody, but I, I just think that's just the nature of what happens before you get away from something. And and I just don't want to um, be a part of that. I want to make sure that I use my platform and others to make sure people still remember what took place that day and the importance and impact of it. Uh, you know, I come from a law enforcement family, so that's something um, my grandfather was captain of our local police department where I grew up for over 40 years, and he was also a volunteer fireman for 71. So the impact at 9-11 and the loss and the heroism is, is something that is um, something that it will always, always live with me too, even though I wasn't there firsthand. But for you, just describe a little bit for people where you were, because everyone, it's one of those moments everyone remembers exactly where they were when they found out. Where were you and what happened immediately after? That morning, I had gotten to my office uh, rather early, uh, as I did usually. I, uh, I worked out. I, uh, I had a gym set up in the back of my executive office. Um, I was actually standing in the bathroom, uh, shaving, uh, taking a shave. And my chief of staff came in and started banging on the outside door. And when I went out to open the door, I said, you know, I said, John, what are you doing? He said, Commissioner, the plane uh, just hit Tower 1. And that's, that's all he said, you know, in the initial statement. And I thought, okay, you know, don't get so excited. It's a, you know, it's a twin engine Cessna, one of these planes that fly up and down the Hudson River. That's what I thought. Um, and I actually, I turned around. I had a treadmill um, in my office and above that treadmill was a TV. I looked up at the television and I could see the damage to the building. And I realized at that minute that, that's no small plane. It didn't look like something a small plane would do. So I walked out of my bathroom uh, and I walked into my conference room, pulled back the, the blinds, and I could see the damage to Tower One uh, close up. It's only about a quarter of a mile away uh, from police headquarters. I called the mayor, Mayor Giuliani. Um, he was on the way downtown. I told him I would meet him at 7 um, World Trade Center, which was directly across the street from Tower One. So when you see the front part of Tower One, Tower Seven faced it. And the reason we were going to go there is because Tower Seven was the headquarters for the mayor's office of emergency management. It was housed on the 23rd floor of that building. So I was going to go to that building and meet him there. And from there, we would manage this crisis, what we thought initially was an accident. So I get downtown, I'm there within seven or eight minutes uh, from my building to Seven World Trade. And as we come down West Broadway and I try to get onto Bessie Street, um, there are policemen there. You can't turn onto the block. There are, um, uh, there's people jumping. And 
I had no, I, I didn't know what he meant. And I stepped out of the vehicle and I looked up at Tower One and I could see a number of people coming down the side of that building. You know, when you watch some of the footage on television today, um, you see them jumping, um, but there were far more that jumped to their death uh, in the early minutes after the attack. Um, and at that point, I, I knew we had big problems. You know, I had been in this business 30 years. Um, I had done everything under the sun when it comes to being a cop. And I've never really felt helpless until that minute. And, and that was a minute in my career that I actually think I felt helpless. I couldn't, there was nothing I could do for them. I couldn't tell them to stop, wait, we're going to come get you. Um, they couldn't even hear me, uh, you know, if I was screaming, uh, you know, and I stood there and watched this, um, waiting for the mayor. And about three or four minutes before he arrived, the second aircraft slammed through the north side of Tower 2. And I was standing, actually, I was standing in front of that building. So when you when you look at the footage from that day and you see that big orange fireball blow out of the north side of the tower, me and my staff and Deputy Mayor Joe Loda and, and some of the other people that was uh, from the mayor's office, we were under that building and had to run for cover. So you were literally there when the plane hit the South Tower? Yes, I was standing in front, directly in front of the building. Um, probably a hundred, maybe 75 yards uh, in front of that building. And uh, we actually ran behind the, uh, the Seven World Trade to get out of the way because, you know, at first I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what happened. Uh, I actually yelled to my guys that somebody's blowing up the buildings. I didn't see that second plane. That second plane came in from the southern side of Manhattan. Um, it went through the southern side of the building and blew out the north side. So I didn't actually know it was a plane until I heard the helicopter uh, pilots, the aviation, my NYPD's aviation guys yelling that a second aircraft had just hit Tower 2. As that was playing out, as you said, you know, that was a feeling you'd never had before, the feeling of helplessness. I mean, you were in the military, you were an MP. Um, work narcotics. I mean, you had seen, seen a lot in your career. And um, do you do you think that you still suffer from any kind of PTSD from that day? Because I know a lot of guys do. You know, a lot of guys did, and it's something that you know soldiers who come back from war they see things they don't expect it. And um, do you think that you 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 suffered from some some of that trauma? Honestly, Tara, I, I don't know if I do. Uh, you know, I, I think about it a lot. Um, and my career before that was, I look, I was a very aggressive cop. I, you know, gun battles, uh, you know, partner shot and wounded. Uh, I've had partner shot and killed, uh, guys killed on the job. Uh, I've seen a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I had never seen nothing like that, uh, naturally. And, and the aftermath uh, of the actual attack um, was far worse. You know, when, when you think of the recovery, um, when you think of the rescue, first of all, the rescue was minimal. There wasn't really anybody to rescue. Uh, there weren't many people injured. Um, not what we thought there would be anyway. 
Uh, I can remember that afternoon going down 7th Avenue with Mayor Giuliani to St. Vincent's, thinking that we would get to the hospital and would be loaded with people, injured people. Um, and there were a bunch of doctors sitting outside on the ground with nurses and, uh, and gurneys waiting for people to show up. Was that, you know, because people were, were, once the towers went down, that was it. I mean, there really was no... The reality is, look, you had two buildings 110 stories tall. Um, those metal beams that the buildings were made out of were about 15 to 1,700 pounds per linear foot. When that stuff started coming down, it basically imploded. Luckily for us, it imploded. Um, unfortunately, we lost everybody above the impact zone and anybody else that was left in the building. Um, there was no surviving it. And I remember that evening uh, going back there late that evening thinking, you know, how could somebody, how is anybody, how, how did they survive? How could they? Um, the heat, the debris, um, and, and now looking back, uh, you know, in the aftermath of the you know, the recovery to realize that uh, much of what was there was vaporized. Uh, much of what was there was disintegrated. You know, I lost 23 uh, men and women, uh, well, 22 men and one woman in the NYPD. And, and honestly, uh, most of them we did not find, uh, you know, or just pieces of, uh, you know, it was terrible. That's what happened with the entire you know, with everybody, uh, a lot of it would just vaporize. It's hard to imagine, and, and just, um, you know, for their families, too, that the lack of closure for, for them because of that. Um, I also heard you, you say another time during an account that it would have taken almost an hour for a fireman in full gear to get up to the top floors of the World Trade Center. Well, you know, you, you have to give the New York City Fire Department in, an enormous amount of credit. Uh, I had I had men uh, assigned to the emergency service unit ESU that were in the buildings walking up the stairs. There were firemen, um, and I don't remember off the top of my head what floors. You know, they had gotten up to like the seventy fifth floor of the building. These guys are carrying like an enormous amount of weight as it is the bunker gear and, and the the Scott air packs and all this other stuff. And they just kept going, you know, right, the, you know, as, as high as they could get uh, right up trying to get to the impact zone. So, you know, you got to give them a lot of credit. Um, you know, think of, you know, you walk up five flights of stairs and you're out of breath. These guys had gone, you know, 60s, 50, 60, 70 floors, uh, maybe more. Um, you know, th these are things that I don't know. I, I don't think the American public uh, realizes when they think back to that day and the, the rescue, the recovery. I think you're right. And that's why it's important to continue to tell those stories. Um, but the amount of heroism and bravery, courage that day is something that uh, I hope we, we never have to see again in this country meaning that it's it's in, in response to another attack. And, and speaking of that, do you think that um, that the threat matrix is different today than it was then? Have we have we become a bit more desensitized to it, perhaps? Or do you think that we've made changes? Uh, I know that there's been changes in the tactics and response and just the, the, the counterterrorism approach to 
major cities like New York. I mean, New York is always a target. Washington, D.C. is a target. Do you think that there's a, a change in, in the nature of the threat now? You know what, Tara, the, uh, a lot of people ask me, do, you, do I believe or do I think that we'll see another 9-11 like we saw on September 11th of 01? You know, people flying planes into buildings. And personally, I don't think we'll see that. Uh, I, I think the airline industry, uh, along with DHS and TSA, uh, you know, they've se secured the airlines and the airports uh, pretty well. Um, I, I think they could still do, do better at times, but I think, I, I don't think we would have a takeover of a flight. If nothing else, um, I, I'm confident that if there was an attempt today, like there was on September 11th, you're going to have every passenger on that plane, uh, you know, taking some sort of action to stop it because they, they've been there. They know what's happened in the past. Um, but on, a, on another note, I personally don't think we need that to really hit the American psyche. Um, you know, the threat itself, Al-Qaeda, uh, uh, ISIS, uh, Boko Haram, uh, you know, I, I try not to, to name the various groups. I can name 25 of them. The reality is it's, it's all one thing. It's one ideology of hate. Um, for the Western world and those that don't believe in their religion. Um, and I, and I want to make clear, I'm not talking about Muslims in general. Um, I have a lot of Muslim friends, uh, everybody from the King of Jordan, uh, you know, uh, a number of Muslim friends uh, that are good people, law-abiding people. They believe in God, their own God. But there is a select group of people that's basically hijacked the Quran. Um, the King of Jordan himself calls them the outlaws of Islam. Um, these are people that believe they have the right to kill anyone that doesn't believe in their God. Um, and they have expanded, they've grown uh, globally around the world. And I strongly believe that that threat is real and that threat exists. That threat exists in our country. Um, and we don't need four planes flying into buildings. If we had you know, five uh, two-man shooting teams go into five different cities on the same day, uh, same time, around the country in different cities, walk into elementary schools and start assassinating kids. I promise you the, the aftermath of that, the mental aftermath, the anguish, um, the economic, uh, you know, devastation that would come out of that would be horrendous. Um, so that's why we've got to make sure we're vigilant and we don't go back to the complacency we had pre-9-11. That's what I think um, makes certain stories like what we saw recently out in New Mexico, where you had these, uh, these group of people who were radicalizing children, starving them to death, had some kind of makeshift uh, training camp out there to train them to do what? Yeah, I can't even fathom, um, you know, the thing that's most annoying about that to me is that a state judge actually um, gave the parents or, or the owners of that, that facility, gave them bail, uh, let them out on bail. I, I can't even, I can't even explain that. I, I don't know what that's about. Um, but what's more important to me is 
I am absolutely confident that's not the only one in the United States. Mm -hmm. There are others. Um, that's why our intelligence capability has to be better than it's ever been. The FBI director said about four or five months ago, Chris Ray, the present director, that they're looking at at least 1,000 to 1,100 targets, possible targets, that they have surveillances on uh, around the country. Um, you know, that, that's, that's a lot of targets um, that if we miss the ball and the, the local and the state and the federal authorities aren't communicating, um, we're going to miss that. So that's a problem. So that actually leads me to um, another question. The flip side, people would say, well, we got the Patriot Act, and which was supposed to expand the government's ability to surveil and to make sure that another 9-11 type thing doesn't happen so we can catch that. But then some of the civil libertarians would say that it's created an expanded government surveillance, um, big brother type of environment here. And are we putting our civil liberties at risk in the name of security? It's a tough question. You know, yeah, but you know what, I think they're both right. Yeah. The bottom line is local, state, and federal authorities were not communicating the way they should be, and they had to do better. They've done a lot better. Um, and it's, could it, is it perfect? No, it's not perfect, but it's a lot better than it was. Um, the Patriot Act, they needed, they needed changes within the federal government because the FBI and the CIA didn't have the ability or the authority, really, the, the legal authority to communicate, um, knowing that they could have the answers to some of these intelligence problems, if you will. Um, so that had to be repaired. But I also agree that we are looking at a system right now where if we don't have the right oversight, um, if we don't have the right monitors over the Patriot Act and, and, and the right court procedures and, and some, you know, monitor or inspector general that's looking at these things that go before the FISA court, which is, you know, it's been crazy as of late to some of the things we found out. I just think for, for us, for the everyday American, that's a major, major problem. So I agree with that, that there has to be more done. Uh, I think there has to be more monitoring. There has to be a specific inspector general that looks at that stuff and takes action when there's violations. I think that's what we're seeing even now with the FISA court discussions, even with, with the President Trump and the dossier and the controversy all over that all over all of that. Um, it, it also raises the question of, do we need to revamp some of these things? Have there been abuses? So I think that that conversation is being had, and, and it's a necessary one, regardless of what side of the issue you fall on with that. At least it's still being examined, because it needs to be. I, listen, I, it needs to be examined, and every American should be concerned. I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. It doesn't make any difference. When the government has the ability to get into your private business um, without a warrant, uh, without a judge's, uh, you know, uh, sign off, um, that's a major problem. And, and right now there's real questions whether, you know, whether that's uh, possible or not. So I, I think it has to be looked at. And the, the frustration and on the issue of, you know, how the Patriot Act came about and, and giving the government some of these the powers to change the lack of communication. Um, I have a Hulu account. I finally got one because I <laughs> I went to go see a premiere for 
this program on Hulu called The Looming Tower. And it was based on a book that was written about what happened between the CIA and the FBI leading up to 9-11 and really about that wall of separation. Um, and uh, it, I don't think people realized how, what an impact that had on our ability to communicate amongst the intelligence agencies. And it was so frustrating because as you're watching the program, you knew what, was, what it was leading up to. And you just like were hoping someone would change it. Someone would, you know, move forward and say, hey, you know, this is what we found out. This is what we know. And you know it didn't happen. So I'm, I'm glad to see that at least that doesn't exist anymore. But we still have, there's, there's always room for improvement. I, I believe that too. A lot of people may or may not know that you uh, did a lot of work in Iraq in the beginning when we went over there and toppled Saddam Hussein. And uh, Iraq was a mess and didn't even have a Ministry of the Interior uh, you played a role in, in helping to get that con- put that country back together in the early stages. And as a result of your, um, of your work over there, the president said, hey, I think you'd make a good DHS secretary. And he nominated you for uh, Secretary of Homeland Security. And then it all, uh, that changed your life. <laughs> what happened? Yeah, you could, you could say that. Um, I was nominated on uh, December 3rd of 2004 uh, for Secretary of Homeland Security. And on the 10th, seven days later, exactly one week later, I had to uh, notify the White House and the president that I had a nanny, uh, a domestic servant, uh, that took care of my kids and my two daughters. And uh, I paid the nanny cash over a two-year period. Um and did not pay payroll tax um, on her uh, her salary. Um, so I withdrew my nomination, and that started a uh, a state and federal, um, you know, torturous, uh, you know, five years uh, of investigations. Ultimately, uh, with which I pled guilty in two thousand nine. Um, to eight felony counts, uh, several of which had to do with my nanny. Um, and I, I was sent to prison uh, for 48 months and served three years and 11 days. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, it was a rough time. Uh, it was torture for my family, uh, especially for my two young daughters who were seven and 10 when I went away. Um, and it, it struck home for me in a couple of different ways. Most importantly, you know, I, listen, I had been in this business 30 years. I was, uh, I was very good at my job. I was a highly decorated cop. And like I said earlier, I've done everything under the sun. I've been a correction officer, a cop, a detective, a narcotics, a federal agent. Had some of the biggest drug cases in New York, uh, gun battles, you name it. Um, and I always just assumed that, you know, the people who went to prison were bad people that did really bad things. Um, didn't focus on the small stuff until I actually got there and realized um, uh, prisons, especially the federal prisons, are loaded with people um, that made mistakes, made stupid mistakes. Um, first time, nonviolent, low-level drug dealers getting 10, 15 years. Um you know, destroying their lives, destroying their prospects for a real life uh, in the future. Um, commercial fishermen caught too many fish. Uh, 
a young man sells a whale's tooth on eBay. Um, somebody enhances their income in a mortgage application. And I came to realize quickly that we put thousands of people in prison for regulatory violations, for, you know, civil violations, administrative violations, uh, you know, things that could be dealt with alternatively instead of uh, turning them into crimes and, and criminal conduct. And we're creating this second class citizen in the United States by the means. Um, and, and I want to make this clear. I'm, I'm no different of a law and order guy today than I was 20 years ago. Bad people that do bad things should go to prison. And some for long periods of time. Some, you know, just keep them there forever if it's going to protect society. Um, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a government um, that takes a regulatory violation like catching, you know, a commercial fisherman catches too many fish instead of fining him or, you know, suspending his license or, you know, seizing his fish or whatever this may be. They turn him into a criminal. They take his boat. They take his livelihood forever. They stick him in jail for a year and him and the six people on the boat lose their jobs. And for the rest of his life, he can't go back and do the only thing he knows how to do. And I'm not talking about one case. I'm talking about thousands of things like this. So I think that's something that has to be dealt with. I also think that's, you know, there's a, a you know, a thing, um, you know, historically, we have put people in prison, this government, um, for decades for first time, low level, nonviolent offenses, uh, drug offenses. And, and I think that's, that's got to stop. Uh, and I know uh, President Trump right now is looking at commuting uh, sentences um, where people were basically put in prison for life for first time uh, nonviolent drug offenses. So, you know, I, I think the, the criminal justice system has many flaws and failures uh, that has to be fixed. And hopefully, uh, you know, the polarization of politics in Washington uh, can, can cease to a point that these guys can come together and do the job they're sworn to do and fix the system. That's a really good point. And I think it's important for people to know that this is coming from someone who was the head of corrections in the state in, in New York. So you oversaw Rikers Island. I had Rikers for six years. I had, uh, you know, enormous successes and achievements, unparalleled uh, historically, uh, achievements in reducing violence, um, making the system better than what it was, far better. Um, and I've been a crazy, you know, really aggressive, gung-ho cop. Um, but I can tell you that the system is broken, and I can tell you that there's ways to fix it. Um, I actually sit on the, uh, the prison reform panel uh, with a number of people for the White House now uh, trying to look at, you know, what could be done to better, you know, deal with uh, offenders uh, coming out of the system um, and, and a number of other things. Uh, but um, I, it definitely there is a problem and it needs to get fixed. I'm glad to see that that is becoming a priority for the Trump administration because, uh, as you know, I worked on the commutation of two Border Patrol agents, Agents Ramos and Compian, who were unjustly imprisoned for over 11 and 12 years for shooting an illegal alien drug smuggler along the border. They thought he had a gun. 
The guy left a million dollars worth of drugs behind. He ran. He assaulted one of the officers. They got into a scuffle. He got shot. They didn't know they shot him because he kept running. And our government gave the the drug smuggler immunity and <laughs> ended up throwing our, our border patrol agents in prison, uh, charging them with a mandatory minimum gun sentencing law, uh, 924C, which was the unlawful discharge of a firearm during a crime of violence. That carried a 10-year mandatory minimum. And that was the first time law enforcement officers had ever been convicted under that statute during the commission of a potentially deadly force situation. Changed my whole perspective on mandatory minimum sentencing and realizing that there's a problem here, not only with, with the gun laws, but also with drug laws. And it goes to your point of, of something, part of your advocacy. I think you, you are recognizing that there is a failure in the mandatory minimum sentencing and an unfairness of it. Well, the, listen, the mandatory minimum sentencing is one thing. Mandatory minimums should be used in the most extreme cases, okay? But the case you're talking about were two sworn federal agents doing their job. And the prosecutors, in their attempt to get a victory, the prosecutors took them doing their job, erased that, and basically, you know, charged them like they were some drug drug criminals, you know, it, it, using a gun during the commission of a crime. You know, that's completely bizarre. That's what happens when prosecutors get overzealous. That's what that's what happens when prosecutors lose sight of what they're supposed to be doing. Um, and, and ironically, we've seen a lot of that these days, or at least I have. Um, and, and that's, you know, it's disgusting. In, in that case, I give you and a lot of other people a lot of credit for pursuing that and pushing it. I remember I wrote them a letter back in, I guess it was 2008 or nine or whatever it was. It was like 2006, seven, eight. They were. Yeah. I wrote a I wrote a letter to the president at the time yeah. asking um, that he, you know, pardon them. Uh, I'm shocked that they were not pardoned. I'm disappointed. Um, and hopefully President Trump could write that wrong because they should have been pardoned. We initially uh, pushed for pardon because we felt that, you know, pardon the difference for people who don't know, you know, pardon means it's completely forgotten, erased from your record. Um, but a commutation, you maintain your conviction, but you, uh, your sentence is reduced and you're released. And in right. that case, initially, we really believed, and I still to, to, to this day believe, as you do, that they should be pardoned. They deserve to be made whole again. It wasn't only them. It was also another border agent named Gary Brugman, who was convicted by the same U.S. Attorney's Office for just pushing an illegal alien down on his foot. And he was charged with the... Um, um, uh, violation of civil rights under color of law. And he spent almost over two years in prison for that, which was ridiculous, ruined his life. Um, and unfortunately, I wasn't around then, didn't know about his story, or else we would have advocated for him too. But we're advocating for Gary Brugman now as well for a pardon. We had to change it to commutation because those guys, like I said, they were sentenced to 11 and 12 years. And they were in solitary confinement for their own safety as federal officers in a federal prison. They were in medium security because of the nature of the crime. It was considered violent crime, which was ridiculous. And so we had to push for commutation because President Bush at the time, he was very stubborn when it came to his friends. And the U.S. attorney, Johnny Sutton, was his friend. 
So we said, look, we just want to get them out of prison at this point, which is why we were at least happy with commutation at the time. And they've been out and able to live their lives. But we hope uh, if you have any influence over there at the administration, I hope you can advocate for them. Don't put my name on it, though, because, you know, <laughs> Trump doesn't. It's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's only the right thing to do. Um, you know, I know, you know, there's this thing, especially uh, as of recent, um, you know, President Trump uh, pardoned uh, a number of people. One was a black woman um, who had been given a life sentence for a first time nonviolent drug offense. Um, you know, he, he got her out of prison, uh, you know, after 20 something years. You know, and everybody jumped on it and said, you know, the United States, America is the land of second chances. I can tell you from a realistic point of view, that's not true. Um, it, it's just not true. Uh, you know, once in a lifetime, somebody gets that opportunity. But the bottom line is America is not the land of second chances, uh, because at the end of the day, if you're convicted of a felony in the federal system, I don't care if you're only given probation. If you only get probation, you live with that conviction on your record until the day you die. You are punished until the day they put you on the ground. And that, that conviction comes with civil and constitutional rights that you lose for eternity. So no matter how minimal the offense was, you know, you, you sold a whale's tooth on eBay. I know a guy, this was real. This, I know a guy that got nine months in federal prison. They charged him for selling a whale's tooth on eBay. Uh, guess what? Until the day they put that guy in the ground, he's going to live with a federal felony conviction on his record, which comes with a number of collateral negative consequences that's never going away. So the punishment doesn't fit the crime. You're punished forever. Right. And I know that you've said before that you feel that there are alternative ways to punish people for things like this. Yeah, of course. Like, does that like the amount of money that a state government or even the federal government spends to incarcerate someone on something like that is exorbitant. It's ridiculous. Do you think that because I we see that there have been some attempts now at reform on the state level, even in places like Texas, which was, you know, known as a law and, law and order state, they realized that this is creating an underclass of people. It's costing our state ridiculous amounts of money. We need to start doing something, whether it was out of the goodness of their own hearts or out of fiscal necessity. At least places like Texas have begun to examine alternatives to incarcerating people with everything all the time. In, in, from where you stand, do you know of some other examples of things that are working in this, in the in the justice reform um, space, and is this something that the Trump administration is also looking to do? The administration now, uh, you know, the president has mandated Jared Kushner to look at this. Jared Kushner is all over it. He gets it. He understands it. Um, our biggest problem in the federal government is Congress, and I, I have to say, the Attorney General. Um, you know, he's not somebody that's going to look at criminal justice reform. Um, in, in an objective way. He's just not going to do it. The problem is the state governments, Texas being one of them, and Texas being the leader, I would say, they don't have a choice. They have to do it. And they have to do it because they can't sustain the economic spending of mass incarceration. They can't. 
So they have to figure out ways to stop that, and they have, and they're working. You have recidivism rates that have dropped. They're emptying prisons. They're putting people back to work. People are getting a real second chance. But I'll tell you something, in the federal government, that's not happening. And it's never going to happen until Congress does the job that they were sworn to do. Just do something, guys. Just like something, you know. They can't get their act together to get anything done. The president has said, President Trump has said, get me the First Step Act, which is a bill right now that passed the House on both sides of the aisle. Get me that bill and I will sign it. And I I have little faith that it's going to happen. The president said, get it to my desk and I'll take care of it. Congress has to do their job. (laughs) It's not the only thing they need to move their asses on. No, it's crazy. It's just nuts. It is. Well, um, just just to kind of wrap up this part of it, and then we'll talk about your new book. A lot of people have have been screaming about the how unethical private prisons have been, and the prison industrial complex. And I used to think that that was just a leftist, a bunch of nonsense about these people that want to you know be soft on crime. And like I said, with my experience dealing with the Federal Bureau of Prisons and and my experience with the border agents and just what they went through in prison. Um, I think that there's something to that. Let me give you an example of something, okay? About uh, six years ago, seven years ago, one of the largest private correction companies in, in the United States, they, they sent out a notice to every state prison system in the country, and they said, we will come in and take care of your prisons at a cost lower than what you're spending if you do two things. One, that you guarantee us a 90% occupancy rate, and it has to be a 20-year contract. Okay, let me tell you something. As somebody that ran the largest jail system in in America, the only way I could guarantee you a 90% occupancy rate was to violate all kind of constitutional rights and keep people in when they weren't supposed to, violate people when you didn't have to. There's a whole multitude of things you would have to do to keep a 90% occupancy rate, especially if your population starts to drop, if you're bound by that contract. So in my opinion, anybody that signs a contract like there, like that, you're, you're committing a crime. Um, but, but they were trying to do it. The bottom line is that pri- private prison complex stuff, there's only one reason we should be using private contractors in a prison system, and that is for the lowest of the low um, minimum security uh, prisoners. That's it. Anything else should be dealt with by the government. And and if you're going to give a private contractor a minimum security prison contract, then there has to be two things. One, it's got to be cheaper than the government can do it. And two, you've got to produce ways to reduce recidivism to make sure that these guys get real programs where they never come back into the system. If you can give me those two things, good. Take those prisoners and knock yourself out. But if you can't, you can't get that contract. And right now, we don't get that. We don't have that. And to be clear, we're not talking about murderers and rapists. You know, you you famously once said that prisons are training ground for thuggery and criminality. You're right. Like what I... But, like I said, I experienced it firsthand and and thought to myself, there's got to be a way that we can help people reintegrate back into society. 
And that's the, that's been the biggest challenge because, as you said earlier, it's like a life sentence. Once you have that felony conviction, it's nearly impossible to get a, a job where you can raise a family and start your life over and get that legitimate second chance. But Tara, this is this is where our poli- politicians fail, right. and they fail substantially. You know, if you talk to anybody about Chicago or Baltimore or Milwaukee or Detroit, any political leader, and talk to them about crime, the first thing they say to you is, well, we have to address the poverty. We have to address the schools. We have to address the economic you know, uh, you know, downfall of the community first. No, you got it wrong. It's completely wrong. And Rudy Giuliani proved that back in the 90s. Nobody's going to come to your community and open up businesses and stores and, and, you know, livelihoods if they don't feel safe. Nobody wants to work, visit, live, or, or go to school in a place where they're worried about getting shot. They don't want to do that. So you have to do first things first. First thing, reduce crime. Second thing, with every percentage point that you reduce crime, and you can look at New York City on this end, every percentage point that we reduce crime in New York City, you saw increases in economic development. You saw increases in real estate value. You saw increases in tourism. You saw increases in people going to schools in the city. The city flourished with a reduction of crime. It's not the reverse. So to go back to what you were just saying, you take a young man, first time, low level, nonviolent drug offense, you stick him in prison for 10 years. Well, guess what? You suck out all the societal values that he may have had in him and you institutionalize him and you teach him how to steal, lie, con, gamble, cheat and, and fight, cut people. That's what you teach him. And now you send him back into his community where he can't get a job. What do you think is going to happen? The system has to change. And the cycle needs to be broken. You know, I, I commend you for your efforts on advocating for that because you could have easily, given your experience, said, you know, to hell with this and taken the victim route and you didn't do that. And so, um, you know, I, I appreciate your efforts in that and continuing to bring awareness to this. I, I support you 100%. And I think that people need to know this is a bipartisan issue. It's uh, becoming more and more of a just a cultural societal necessity to try to figure out the problem with this. We're creating an underclass of, of, of criminals in this country that are, that are not integrating back into society. And that's, and that's creating a cycle of poverty of set of people ending up back in jail. And we, we, we have the ability to make a dent in that and stop that. Now let's talk about your new book. You've written books before, and I encourage people to go and read your book about your experience uh, from uh, jailer to jail. That's compelling. I read it. If people are interested in, in your experience and what you went through, um, it's it's a it's a fascinating book. But now you have ventured into fiction. Yeah, this is uh, this is something new for me. You know, I, the, my first book, book did really well. It was a New York Times bestseller back in '01, uh, called The Lost Son. Uh, I, I did from jailer to jail to, uh, after I uh, I was targeted by the government. This is a novel. Uh, involves a, a fictitious New York City police commissioner who gets involved in a terrorism uh, case personally. Um, and, and it's ironic, you know, there are tidbits of things that I recall from September 11th that are in the book. Uh, and, and just to give you a, a, a little bit about the book, um, the New York City police commissioner on September 11th 
he was a captain in the New York City Police Department. He was the first precinct commander, which is the precinct around uh, the World Trade Center. Um, and being that he was the precinct commander there, he would have had oversight. He was intricately involved, and ironically, his wife was on Flight 93, uh, one of the planes, one of the four planes that um, the terrorists hijacked. Um, so he hates the terrorists. He hates the ideology from the attack on the towers. He hates the ideology. They killed his wife um, in a, I'll stop it there, but the book goes on. And, um, you know, it's one of these things. I've had people read it. Uh, come back to me. And, you know, Geraldo Rivera this weekend uh, sent me a text message. He says, I picked up the damn book and I can't put it down. Hopefully it'll do well. It's my first time with a novel. Um, and it's, you know, novels, uh, they're not as easy to write as I thought they would be, but uh, we'll see how it goes. I was going to ask you, was this more a labor of love? Was this more difficult? Did you find it easier to write fiction? It's not, uh, people would think it's easy. You just make stuff up. It's not easy at all. When you write a, a biography, these, it's factual stuff. It's stuff that you actually, you know, you remember, you, you know. Um, when you write a novel, you know, what was this guy's name five chapters later? Oh, what was, what was his name again? What, what did he look like? You got to go back. You, you know, there's all kinds of things that uh, it's not as easy as I thought. I thought it would be a lot easier than it was. What inspired the, the title? The terrorism, you know. The, this, the, the constant death and destruction, um, you know, it's, uh, it's something that sticks in my mind constantly uh, in the aftermath of, of not knowing, uh, what was it, you know, it was a grave. Um, you know, it, people often ask me, you know, did I agree with, you know, the way they rebuilt uh, the World Trade Center downtown? Um, my thing was I didn't want them to build on the footprints of the towers. It was a burial ground. You know, people disappeared there. They were disintegrated. They vaporized. Um, anyway, that has something to do with it. And, it's, you know, the description of, of the book, you know, the, the grave above the grave, they say it's a story of suspense, murder, a terrorist conspiracy ripped from today's headlines. Sounds to me like it's a page turner. I can't wait to read it. I, I, I need to get a copy. You need to send me a copy, Brian. I need to get it. <laughs> or, you know what? I'm going to buy it because I want to support you. I don't want to All right. It. Okay. <laughs> All so, right. Uh, you know, as we, as we wrap up, um, your life, you've lived an extraordinary life. Even before your time in 9-11, that it was extraordinary. Your experiences uh, as, as a police officer in the military and all of that. You lived a lifetime before there. You lived another lifetime after that. I think it's movie-worthy. Who plays Bernie Carrick in the biopic? Oh, I don't know. You know, we've talked about this for years. Uh, you know, my, my actual, my first book has actually been optioned seven different times. Um, you know, from Russell Crowe to Vin Diesel to, you know, I've had all these names thrown at me. Who knows? You know, if I had my choice, uh, it would be Sly Stallone in his younger years. It's my man. I, you know, he's a good friend. Uh, in fact, there's a blurb on the book uh, from Sly, uh, from Brad Thor, uh, from Congressman Peter King. Uh, we'll see how it does. Well, I, uh, I hope the, the book does well. I hope you get another New York Times bestseller on your hands. Uh, the book is out now. Go out and get it. Um, Bernie Carrick, thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time. And um, keep up the good work. And uh, we'll look out for those pardons. A, a pardon for you, perhaps? Yeah, well, we'll, we'll see. <laughs>
So, all right, Sarah. All right, Bernie. Thank, thank you. you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you again to former New York City Police Commissioner Bernie Carrick. That was a great interview. I really, really enjoyed that with him. And the conversation, I hope, continues about criminal justice reform. There's so many aspects to it, and I just think that it's something that's bipartisan, something that the, actually this administration, to their credit, is trying to work on legitimately. And um, AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, is a fantastic think tank. I'm part of their leadership network there, and they their scholars have done some great work on criminal justice reform and using examples of programs in in prisons, in state prisons, where they're trying to lower recidivism rates by teaching inmates entrepreneurial skills. So when they get out, they have some skill to start their own business because it's so difficult to get a job once you're a convicted felon. As Bernie was discussing, that's part of the cycle. It makes it very difficult to get break out of the the cycle of going back into prison because you can't work, you can't get a job because you're a felon. So in places like Texas and California, they've begun to do public-private partnerships with organizations to help try to teach skills to um, to inmates. Now, we're not talking murderers or rapists, not like that, but you know, low to mid-level um, uh, convicts that, that need skills. If you don't want them to go back to jail, you want them to integrate back into society, we've got to give them a way to legitimately make money and not have to resort back to crime. So... Um, the American Enterprise Institute, for those of you who are interested in this, I would, you know, take a look at some of their work on this issue. Even the Koch brothers, they're, you know, the evil Koch brothers, I don't think they are, but they do, they do good work on this, on this issue too, on criminal justice reform. And, um, this is, uh, something that I just think will help communities. Um, and and I think we're in a unique time where that can this issue can actually maybe we can get something done on it. So I applaud Bernie and his efforts on that. Let's see what the Trump administration does. They're in there now, so if we can get something, if we can get something uh, positive out of it, great. So I'm going to try every week to end my show with something positive because I think we always need to hear good works, good deeds, things that people are doing. It's always so such a downer a lot of times with this administration. So I just think it's important to see that there's more to life than what's happening in Washington, D.C. all the time. So um, to end the show, I wanted to talk about just a really quick, a quick story about a police officer. Because as you know, I'm very supportive of our police. And I just think that they we hear so much about the negative stories. We should hear some positive stories because more police officers are good than bad. And I just don't think we, we hear enough about that. So this the story that I wanted to just quick tell everybody this week is about a police officer who helped a homeless man land a job at McDonald's. And how did he do that? Well, this officer, his name is uh, Tony Carlson. He's in Tallahassee, Florida. And he saw a homeless man uh, trying to shave. And he went and helped him. He helped shave, give him a clean shave because he found out that he was applying for a job at McDonald's. And the recruiter told him, look, you know, you got to clean yourself up and then come back in. So this police officer helped this homeless man, cleaned him up, and he ended up getting the job. And the video went viral. 
So that's how they knew who the officer was. And it got back to the police station, to the, you know, the police department. And Senator Marco Rubio's office heard about the story. So they came, they contacted the police officer, Officer Carlson, and said, hey, listen, we'd like to help get this gentleman his social security card and his ID so that he can get this job. And they went ahead and they did that. And now this gentleman has a job. So the homeless gentleman's name is Phil. We don't have a last name. So thank you, Officer Carlson, for all of your help going above and beyond more than just protecting and serving, also being a peace officer as well and helping that homeless gentleman, Phil. Best of luck to him with his new job at McDonald's. Thank you all very much for listening to the first episode of Honestly Speaking with Tara. Be sure to follow me, follow the podcast and on Twitter at honestly underscore Tara, hashtag honestly speaking Tara. Or you can also follow me on Instagram at the Tara Setmayer, on Twitter at Tara Setmayer. I'll see you next week. Rick Wilson, author of Everything Trump Touches Dies, will be joining me next Tuesday with his wit and charm, talking about his book, what it's like to be an epic never Trumper, and um, it'll be a good time. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>